I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. We are on episode 93, covering Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melnibene. And with me today is that incredibly handsome Lord of Chaos, Hoy. Youthful, except when I'm a black lump appearing out of a wall. (laughs) (laughs) And with us today, we've also got the author of Strange Frequencies, the extraordinary story of the technological quest for the supernatural, as well as the author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, and the editor of Appendix N, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons. Help me welcome Peter Biebergall. Hello. Thanks for having me. Such a thrill to have you on. Really great to be here. Just yeah. huge honor. Thank you. Yeah, and our social medias have just been blowing up with your with your Appendix N um, collection. People are loving this anthology. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. yeah, I think that the publisher Strange Attractor, just from an aesthetic point of view, just did a beautiful job with the physical book. Right. Mm-hmm. And as we're talking right now, the sort of more, um, li- the non-limited edition will have just been released right here at the end of February. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So that's now available. The The hardcover was only printed at 500 copies, and I think that those are all gone now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the guys in my gaming group did get a, co- get, did oh. get a copy of that, so he just like was showing off and like on his little, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say show off, he was sharing. <laughs> <laughs> So, Peter, we'll go ahead and dive into our cliche RPG podcast questions, which starts with, how did you get into gaming? So, I had an older brother who was not in any way interested in games or gaming. But he had uh, told me about this store that was living in uh, Hollywood, Florida at the time. And this is probably 1977-78. And a new store had opened up called The Complete Strategist. E-A-T, mm-hmm. spelled E-A-T. Yep, yep. And he, I guess, had either heard of or had went to the store and saw the basic set of Dungeons & Dragons and thought I might like it. So he took me over there and he bought me the basic set. This was, po- I guess this was the edition post-chit, so it came with dice. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I spent a long time after that in that store, just consumed by this new, really what felt to me like kind of punk rock in its sort of sensibility. You know, I really could sense that there was something, I mean, I didn't understand at the time what things meant to call them underground or fringe or non-mainstream. I just knew that you know, so much of the material in that store felt like it was photocopied on somebody's, you know, um, uh, office photocopier or mimeograph. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, I remember just even like packages of brand new miniatures felt like 
they were already broken in the like there was just something about the whole thing like nothing ever felt brand new something sort of very outsider art sort of a- yeah had a weird quality about them um and of course the the fellow who owned the shop his thing was war games okay. so he had a huge um back room with a giant table where he had probably panzer blitz or you know um the uh, arab israeli war i think that was a big that was a big popular avalon hill game at the time and so he was very kind i mean i was 12 11 mm-hmm. 12 going in there and bothering him and my parents would drop me off on a sunday and i would just walk i would just hang around the store for hours amazing you know? yeah and um, not a lot of people came in, but but when they did come in, I noticed that at least there they were they were definitely more of the wargaming grognards as opposed to D and D folk. It still really didn't seem to have caught on where I lived quite yet. Um, and the other funny thing about that store was that he was kind enough to turn me on to other gaming things so he introduced because i didn't have anybody to play D with he was smart enough to turn me on to tunnels and trolls and so that was really my first gaming experience was playing tunnels and trolls by myself using the solitaire rules playing buffalo castle which is you know i've just wonderful memories of the artwork um mm-hmm from those books and the humor in there that the humor in, in, the humor, in, in exactly. St. Andre's writing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That was Painting. a very generous soul. This owner of the store. That yeah. Really seems, nice. Very right. patient. Right. Cause there's some store owners are just like, this is just a way to, for me to finance my hobby and, you know, <laughs> get out. Right. If you're not exactly. buying I'm sure there was some of that, but <laughs> right. he was, yeah, right. sure. Um, but I, you know, I bought even then before I really had friends to play with, I bought a lot of the, um, judges guild material. I love Teagle Manor. Just, the sprawl of it and the level of detail. And so I just, you know, again, I I really want to emphasize too that for me so much about what I loved about the culture of that and the games themselves, even before I really started to play was that I could sense that there was something that was just a little bit um, off the grid about all this. And, and in some ways, and I've talked about this before, by the time I was like 15 or 16, I started um, becoming involved in the... I moved to Boston and became involved as a fan of the Boston punk hardcore scene in the 80s. And going from Judges Guild fanzines, Judges Guild materials to punk rock fanzines felt like a very natural thing. Right? 100%. Yeah. You know, it didn't seem like, oh, now once I was a nerd and now I'm punk and those two things shall not, never meet. They, they, <laughs> they felt very much a piece of just right. who I was and the things that I wanted to be exposed to and the things that I was interested in. And so, you know, I really feel like in many ways, the early days, at least for me, of D&D and gaming were also just about being exposed to different kinds of people, different kinds of ways of thinking about things, different kinds of ways of doing publishing, uh, how important mail order was to our ability to access, you know, information and new materials about the things that we were interested in because there wasn't the internet. And so when I did meet kids that wanted to play, you know, we even then, excuse me, knew that we were kind of doing something that felt 
different. We weren't, it, what's interesting though, is I wasn't, strangely, I didn't, maybe it was just because my parents or, you know, I wasn't exposed really to like personally satanic panic type things, at least on my parents' part. Mm-hmm. And we weren't really picked on, you know, for playing D&D. We just kind of did our own thing and everybody else did their own thing. Um, I would be picked on more later for being punk than sure. I would ever for having played D&D. And how did all of this transition into an interest in the Appendix N? So I think that for me, the most important piece of this is that more than games, more than anything, I love books and I Mm -hmm. love literature. And so it wasn't really, when I was a kid, I didn't know about, I didn't know about Appendix N. I didn't notice it at all. It probably wasn't until about um, 15, 20 years ago when I started playing again after having sort of a hiatus that I started, you know, reading differently and reading these books differently and getting the Dungeon Master's Guide and really doing more of a deep dive rather than just picking the pieces that I needed for the game in the moment when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and seeing Appendix N and it was kind of revelatory. Mm-hmm. When you saw that list, had yes. you read any of that stuff before, or was that um, some like mute? I, yeah, I had read Elric before, and I had read um, Lovecraft and Vance, and I had read Tolkien, of course, and Howard. A lot of it was stuff that I hadn't heard about, mm-hmm. um, and but I think it was it was part of the revelation of it was not that that there was this list, but that Gygax would go out of his way. <laughs> to add this list to the book. Yeah. That he wanted you to know that none of this was created, at least in terms of the sort of landscape of his imagination, was created in a vacuum, right? That he was a reader, mm-hmm. that he loved mythology, that he loved the tales that his parents would tell him, that he loved pulp. And and he would even go on in there to say that comic books as well, right? Mm-hmm. All of it. And you know, I know that there's a lot of controversy around, or at least, you know, we pick at Appendix N about where did maybe some of the rules come from, or where did maybe some of these characters come from. But in some ways, I think what's more important, I mean, not that that's absolutely not an, in a great conversation to have, but I also think what's really just a value is to know that so much of just culture in general happens as a result of stories mm-hmm. right that, that we don't jump into things without all that if you want to call it baggage or whatever mm-hmm. the way in which our consciousnesses are shaped by story by and in this case a lot of pulp, a lot of great and wild pulp stuff yeah nothing is created in a void right, right. nothing's created in a void and what's also strange too is to also to see like how much science fiction he he mentions in there which yeah, is a lot which, of it mm-hmm. yep now, Peter, I'm seeing another through line, which is in your body of work, which is uh, occult, mysticism, religion, uh, going through there in your body of work, not related to Dungeons and Dragons. But does that also carry into your interest in Dungeons and Dragons um, as well? And you know, also you have a divinity school training as well on top of that. Yeah, yeah. I think it. I think it does. I think it has a lot to do with just for me, all of these things um, exist as aspects of our. Um, of our imagination and the parts of our imagination that really rely on ritual, on community, on 
narrative storytelling, on shared universes, right, on mm-hmm. all of those things. I even think that um, I'm working with um, uh, author. He's an author maker. Um, he was a, a early part of the maker uh, community and cyberpunk uh, pioneer named Gareth Branwin. Um, and he and I have been working on uh, developing a sort of gameable occult magic system using D&D and RPG elements. Cool. So we've created sort of like a divination system using RPG dice. Hmm. Wow. Um, thinking about the development of, so like becoming a magician is becoming this character. And so some. So to answer your question in a very um, concrete way, we've sort of come upon this idea really that that the parts of our consciousness that game is very similar to the parts of our consciousness that engage in other kinds of religious or spiritual ritual. Right. There's so certainly uh, a weekly game could be a, a communion, right? Absolutely. That, you know, sure. or, or a shared um, heightened experience of some sort. You know, yeah, uh, there's a change in consciousness, I think, right. that can occur when you're at the game table in a, in yeah. a, you know, in a profound way. Mm-hmm. So, Peter, the last question I want to ask you before we change the subject and start talking about the book at hand is what other fiction has inspired your gaming, Appendix N or non? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So definitely the book that we're going to be talking about today (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and and that world. Um, I think that for me also, I tend to um, look at things that are more less about fantasy locations and more about ways of thinking about things. So, for example, John Fowles, The Magus, is, is sort of an interesting one for me because it's sort of about how a whole experience um, is is a puzzle, mm. right? Um, and I've always really liked the idea that dungeon crawls are less about, you know, killing and treasure hunting than they are about puzzle solving. Mm. Um, I'm starting a game um, using old school essentials mm-hmm. um, in a couple of weeks, and one of the things um, I've been talking about with our with the players is thinking about it um, sort of like an Ocean's Eleven type thing, where you really have to prep. You you have to get as much information about what you think you might encounter and prep for that, rather than just assuming the essential stuff you might need for a dungeon, mm-hmm. right? So I really like that idea of, um, you know, for me, it's, it's again, it's literature that has more to do less with just the fantasy elements as opposed to the puzzle. So, for example, Borges would be somebody who has impacted me in terms of thinking about, you know, the idea of... Um, meta levels you know inside of dungeons and things like that so it's interesting how much um when i think about when i'm designing or wanting to play that i i look often less to fantasy tropes than to other kind of literary tropes sorry and who's borges oh um borges is the um the Spanish uh, language writer. Oh, 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 yes, yes, yes. Yes, okay. yes. Yep, Labyrinths is his, yep. And yes. so he does a lot of, you, you know, books about, um, you know, I, I love the idea. I remember as a kid, like, one of my favorite things was Tolkien 
in in some I think it was the Encyclopedia of Middle Earth, which I like poured over as a kid. You know, that he mentions. There's a book that's mentioned there. I wish I could remember the name, and maybe some of your listeners can and, and can comment after. That he mentions this book that he had read, where he learned about some of the history of Middle Earth. Right. Mm. That there was actually like these these ancient texts that were uncovered. You know. Right. So I love these idea of texts within texts at the meta level. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Right. Um, In Borges mentioned like uh, like the library of all the books that I think Neil Gaiman stole the concept from him. Like the library of all the books that were never written. That exactly. Were, like, that, that's that, exactly right. All <laughs> that, that stuff that's cool. had planned to write yeah. but never wrote. That's you know? right. Yeah. And now I'm just grateful to know how to pronounce his name. So that's exciting because I, I I do know who you're talking about. I just okay. had no idea how to say it. So. <laughs> I hope well, I'm I'll... saying it right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go ahead and start chatting about Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melnibide. And let's start with, uh, let's look at which edition of the book that we're working with. So, um, Peter, what do you have? I have the Ace Books version from, I guess this is a 1987 edition. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes, yes. The Robert Robert Gould covers. Yes, Gorgeous. which yes. I love, and I have a I have most of the ones in this set um, with this with these covers, which are yeah. great. Yeah. What about you? I have the Daw paperback. Yep, Michael Whalen. Oh, beautiful. With the Michael Whalen cover. Yep, yep. yep. Elric of Melnibide, and he's got his uh, badass helmet on. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that that's Obek's sword there, the the uh, five foot log Obek sword. I'm guessing that that's yes. not Stormbringer, but maybe well, it's Stormbringer. It's it could be Stormbringer. I think that. Oh, you're right. It is black. Yeah, yeah. Do you know the book Stormbringer in that series is one of the most rare like paperbacks from that time and sells for like hundreds and hundreds you of know, dollars. I have a copy I mean, somewhere, but it's probably completely destroyed. You know, yeah, I, I have a copy of it. <laughs> right. Um, and I also I was highlighting it when I was <laughs> reading it for the, right, right. For the book. I mean, that but, is the definitive Elric painting, though, right? That picture of him like in, leaping into the green oh, sky. So there. good. Yeah. Boy, so what good. do you have? What version are today? You I am working with the um, sorry, Del Rey, which at the time Moorcock was saying was sort of the definitive version of the text because um, there's of this series because certain things have been removed, added in over the time. So. Um, yes. It's great. It has a lot of commentary, meta commentary. I think it's great from a scholar's point of view, but from a reading point of view, it's by the order of composition in this point, the internal chronology, which means that Elric of Melnibony is actually the third book in the Stell Ray series. That's right, yes. And Stormbringer is the, the very first, first novel, actually. Yeah. Isn't right, it? right. Because the rest are sort of fix ups. They're, they're like yeah. short stories that are turned into novels. Yeah, so, the first true novel. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's what I'm working with today. Very cool. And we'll take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day, which was actually um, also one of our um, patrons, Dan Alexander, sent us an email suggesting that this be our Hygaxian word of the day. And I was deciding between a few, and I was like, you know what? I'll go ahead and go with that one then. So our word for the day is... Grimoire. Grimoire. So Grimoire is found on um, a couple of pages throughout the text that I have here. Once on page 71, it says he will go alone into the young kingdoms and he will not be allowed to take his grimoires with him. And then again on 77, and when he was satisfied for the dangers of misunderstanding the implications of the things described in the grimoires were catastrophic. He slept for three nights in a drugged slumber. It's incredible that you've, that's the word, and it, it's actually a very personal word to me. And it, it actually is another uh, answer to your, 
one of your questions about both influences and thread throughs, which is that when I was about 14 years old, it was the first time I took a bus by myself to Salem. I, at this point, we lived, as I told you, Massachusetts. We moved to Salem. I, I took a bus to Salem and went to Lori Cat, which is very well known at the time, Lori Cabot's bookstore. She was the witch of Salem. Mm. And I bought a grimoire called The Key of Solomon the King, which is considered to be like one of the most um, influential of all the medieval grimoires. And it's information about how to gives you all the spells you need for conjuring angels and binding demons and all the things that Elric would need to do, particularly <laughs> with uh, demons, is found in that grimoire. And that Amazing. book would have such an influence on both just my obsession with magic and the occult and religion and how it all ties together and ultimately um, role-playing. It's like a, an awesome, unusable role-playing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I feel like my personal experience is kind of a cross between your grimoire and your tunnels and trolls experience because I remember being 13 and getting a copy of Scott Cunningham's The uh, Wiccan Guide to the Solo Practitioner. So there's a whole book awesome. of like <laughs> how to cast spells as a solo Wiccan practitioner. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, uh, that is our Hygaxian word of the day. So we can go ahead and head on into the library, uh, starting with you, Peter. What did you think of Elric of Milnibene? So this is actually, I think, my third or fourth reading of this book. Okay. And I want to say that some years ago, I decided, I think as I was turning 45 or into 50, I'm 54 now, that I would no longer read books I've already read because there's just too many books left to read. Okay. But I keep cheating with a few books, and this is, <laughs> this is one of them. And I don't know what it is. It's a strange, somewhat, um, there's, there's violence, there's torture, there's torment. But it's such a cozy book for me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know why. There's something about it that just, um, I, I think Moorcock is a great stylist. And I think there's something about the language that, just really the, the flow of the language really works for me. I love the set pieces. But on this reading, there were a few things, there were a few groaners, you know, that stood out. I never, at the, I guess in all my readings before, had just turned a blind eye to sort of how ridiculous the name of Dr. Jest is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I kind of loved that. Right. I don't know why, but. <laughs> right, right. It I think works. That's Right, it's so perfect for Moorcock, but it's just such a, and him cutting off um, the ex. It's uh, the quote is expertly seize the genitals of one of the male prisoners. The scalpel <laughs> flashed. Period. There was a groan. Period. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of great moments like that because then there's also that moment where um, he's talking about how he's got his. Um, room full of slaves and each one has been mutilated in such a way as to be able to perfectly produce a single note. Right. So together yes. they create this beautiful piece of music. <laughs> yes. Such a, such a perfect, right. weird Moorcock and not Tolkien. Right. Elvish yes. behavior. Right. right. Very non-Tolkien. <laughs> right. And it's funny to think of this like, oh, this is completely outlandish, blah, blah, blah. But the other interesting thing is that in a way, 
Moorcock is highlighting this, just heightening this thing that actually happened in real life where the Castrati and, you know, That's right. right. And so mm-hmm. and it's like, so he's just heightening. He's like, you know, all this horrible things that happen, you know, Lords of Chaos, all that is not more horrible than the things that we actually do to each other. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but then, of course, there are things of, I think, just of great wonder and beauty in this book. I love King Grom. I love the ship of on land. Um, you know, there's those reading those things again. Um, I absolutely, uh, probably, I think one of my favorite things that comes out of all um, of of these books, and I think in in some ways, looking over Appendix N again and thinking about relationships that some of our main that some of the main characters have had in some of those great tales um, is um, Elric's you know, not long, but I think very potent relationship with Rakir. Mm-hmm. I just, I find that there's something about that Moorcock wanted to lend a character that um, let us understand Elric in a different way as well, mm-hmm. you know. Well, yeah, because Moonglum was so successful at helping us kind of um, give depth to Elric and this is before Elric has met Moonglum. So here we have both, we both have Divin, uh, Divin Tavar yeah. performing that role in the first yes. section of the book. That's and then right. Rakir, the Red Archer, kind of performing that role again later. Um, but also Divin Tavar, Rakir, the Red Archer, and Moonglum also all three feel like very distinct and different characters. It doesn't just feel like we've got this like cookie cutter sidekick thrown in there just for Elric to have one. Right, no, right. definitely not. And, and they're allowed and, to express doubt about Elric, which uh, like a oh, more yeah. uh, sort of heroic figure they would not be able to do. You know, that's in a way. right, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's because he, as a as a, as a sort of an anti as a hero slash anti hero, allows himself to be vulnerable is mm-hmm. a little bit transparent uh, sometimes about his struggle, his conscience, as it were, mm-hmm. right? Um, even though, I mean, I love this, you know, you you want, and, and Warcock surprises you because there's, you know, at the beginning of the book, you're seeing this character where you think, oh, he's going to somehow revolutionize this world. He's going to take it into the, a new, an, an enlightened era. He's something different. But then when he's watching the torture, he both is bored, he's not repulsed by it. Yeah. He he even understands its necessity. Mm-hmm. So so then suddenly you you have this feeling of, oh, so he's actually still is of this world. Part and parcel has Part and parcel and isn't right. trying yeah. to completely extract himself from it. Right? And he's not even trying to suggest that he wants to impose his own conscience on changing everybody else, right? Right, right. Yeah, and it's interesting because we also see this like real sense of a search for identity and a search for um, for a place in his world. And there's a lot of kind of internal struggle with his identity in this because at some points we see Elric um, kind of become passive to this idea of like, fine, I will become a puppet of my ancestors. I will rule the way that Melnobonians are supposed to rule. I will just be an extension of thousands of years of my bloodline. 
we have him kind of resigned to this for a portion of the book. And then near the end of the book, we have kind of the exact opposite where he's like, I will yield, I will wield uh, Stormbringer and Stormbringer will be my servant and I will not be a pawn of the gods and my right. ancestors. Right. I will be my own person who will forge my own fate. But there's also like, a very clear sense of kind of irony and um, and um, and naivete right. in his in his thinking that he can actually do that. Right. I mean, Moorcock right. literally says he lied to himself three times right there, right? And to Simrail. Yes. <laughs> right there yes. at the end. Right, right. Now, um, Peter, you have a thought, and I want to also yeah, build on I just, this thing. I, yeah. I just, you know, part to your point there, there's also this great moment where, you know, when he still... Mm-hmm there's still something about him that loves the job of emperor. And I Mm. love at when they have to, um, when they're getting all the uh, ships ready to go to battle with the barbarians Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and your coon says, Hey, uh, you know, I could, I can take the command here. And I was like, no, thanks. I got, I got this. It. You know, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And it's very hot. I mean, there's a haughtiness to him that I really admire right. to see that character again have these, but it never feels contradictory, right? No, it, no. That's yeah. what's so amazing about Morcock's ability to craft this character. Right, right. Now, I'm sort of the sort of uh, semi history nerd on this podcast. So I was interested, and Peter, you and I are rough contemporaries, maybe to situate this. Uh, interesting. So this is written in 72. So this is seven years after Stormbringer had been published. And who knows how long um, uh, Moorcock had been conceiving of Elric before that, certainly probably by 1959, I think, right? So as a teenager. Yes. And so now this is Moorcock, uh, you know, coming into his prime right now. He's in his mid 30s when he's writing this, right? Um, 61 is when the Dreaming City was first published. 61, right. So four, yep. uh, 11 years later. Science so now, fantasy. Right. And Moorcock was born in, I believe, 36. So he's coming into his prime. Um, I'm wondering, this is 1972. I'm wondering this is also about the limits of idealism. This is the hangover from the 60s, seeing like what has happened in the 60s. And, and um, so this is, you know, and, and even though this is a prequel, this is a more mature Elric in some ways than the sort of more emotional Elric that appears in Stormbringer, yes, right? Because it is. this is, again, yes. El, um, Moorcock, you know, 10, 15 years older. So I, th- I think that the whole series may be a talk about the limits of idealism, the limits of working within uh, systems of powers that oppress you, whether it's law or chaos. Right? Yes, I think so. And I think that that's part of what you're starting to see um, with the new wave literature, science fiction movement that he in many ways was with um, Harlan Ellison, you know, the, the sort of um, fathers of. And what's important about that is it was in their magazine, New Worlds, where you start to see these really deep critiques about Tolkien. And why that's important in terms of the history is Tolkien really, that revival of Tolkien in the 60s is essential to the Lord of the Rings general success even now, right? There had to be that. And it, it was the sort of hippies that were looking and admiring the sort of, you know, this sort of rural sensibility of a hobbit, right? And the sort of detention between the industrialism of Sauron and the, right, the... Um, and keeping to the keeping to the old, keeping to nature, uh, part of that battle. But 
the new the new the new wave authors and and Moorcock and we see John Harrison was writing about this too. They were the hippies misunderstood Tolkien. That mm-hmm. Tolkien was a conservative mm-hmm. who, who who was almost like a, it was a traditionalist in a way that bordered on something that was not about cosmic consciousness at all, right? right. <laughs> but was about keeping keep to your your little hobbiton home yeah and every maintain the status quo contain the status quo right Right, right. and so exactly what you're saying who i think is that yes elric is the end of the six this elric is the end of the 60s into the 70s with that kind Mm. of cynical shift from you know what's what's amazing if you think about that is and maybe this is a real reach but why not um, <laughs> you know, yeah. LSD, in many ways, which was the which was supposed to really be the fuel to usher in the new golden Aquarian age. By the time this book is published, is already starting to give way to heroin and speed, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, Elric's dependence on drugs is not the mind expansion of acid. No. It's the opiate of heroin. Right. It's right. the opiate of heroin or it's the speed allowing you to be a better cog in the industrial world. It, exactly. Right. And so yeah. I think it's that the college student yeah. taking taking Adderall. It is. the Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so his dependence on it and his ultimate dependence on this sword. Right. Is not about freeing himself from um Maya and illusion to you know expand into again this kind of Aquarian dream utopia, right? And I so I, I think you're I think you're spot on mm. <laughs> that this is really one of the it, it, it is happening and is not accidental that the flavor the tone of it um, and I think in some ways is a response to the popularity of Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is a really great way of kind of looking at and framing, you know, addiction and dependence because it starts with, you know, Elric turning to this thing as his way of kind of coping with his problems. And then it becomes the source of his problems, which is, I mean, kind of straight up the the path, the path that most people who struggle with drug abuse go down. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. And we see those bargains being made right in this book, right? Like the the addition potions. This is when he first calls on Ariok, right? And, and he's yep. using the tools, the very tools of, uh, you know, again, the drug addiction, or if we get to the political side, the very power that can oppress is the power that he's going to use, just like the early, you know, people maybe right after the Bolshevik Revolution. Oh, okay, well, we've got all these counter-revolutionaries, so we have to be just as autocratic as the Czars are. Know, to avoid, exactly. You know. Yeah. yeah, and Strasha <laughs> yeah. is warning him about yeah. aligning himself yeah. with the with the Lords of Chaos, just in the same way that you know society warns us about the dangers of doing heroin. Yet yeah. a lot of us end up still getting hooked on heroin. Right. You know, so it, it's it's these these aren't people who are going into this without knowing that there's some degree of risk associated with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's the tragedy, right? Because they that they know. Yeah, they know, um, and they feel like they're strong enough to handle it. But also, they also feel like they kind of need this thing because no they're choice. in this situation where it's like without it, they don't really understand how they can cope with their with 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 their reality. Yeah. And so, 
is, I mean, this, I don't want to, uh, can we say a little bit about Eternal Champion stuff here? Sure, absolutely. Because, of course. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. he, uh, you know, he is, as as this idea of the Eternal Champions as these avatars, right, it, it, it arise at different ages. Now, this is a, Elric takes place in a non-age, right, in a fantasy age. If if he also is the eternal champion of the 1970s, now we really have something interesting to say about you know some of your points about what is he about is he about overcoming those things is he about own is he about embracing them and then learning how to have power within those things that we become dependent on because he is a hero after all in some ways right we still oh absolutely yeah so right right and and it's interesting that um as prolific as moorcock is like what 75 novels now at this point and then countless short stories that the character that he would revisit even though the character's fate is written in stone is elric right he hasn't really revisited you know hawk moon or you know any of the other elements of the eternal champion as much right it's always elric that he uses as his instrument maybe jerry cornelius jerry cornelius in his many guises but not literally elric as elric right right? yeah yeah um and you know obviously the von beck family he follows but not a single character from the von beck you know, family as the point of view for this. And Elric would be the one that would capture the imagination of other game designers of Rock and of Blue Oyster Cult, of Hawkwind, yeah. you know, of all these great, you know, so he, there's still something there that, look, I mean, we're talking about it in some, I think in some very important ways, but in the end, can we just agree that Elric is cool? Right. <laughs> That's <real> cool. <laughs> right. right. Absolutely, he is. It's right. like Ziggy Stardust cool. Right. <laughs> and it is time for us to start transitioning our conversation over towards the gaming side. And I have a little spoiler. I know that you have your deities and demigods by your side, and you were asking before we started recording if, if we can chat about this. So, of course. Uh, so, I take it you have one of the editions that have our um, Melnabonian and Cthulhu sections intact. Yeah, I do. As do um, Hoy and I. Right. Yes. Some, mine is somewhere, though. I don't know where it is, but I do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I want to yeah. say for the record that I've never used it in any game or campaign I've ever played. But okay. Deities and Demigods is my single favorite RPG book. Mm-hmm. I adore it. I adore the art. I adore the absolute ridiculousness of trying to give stats to gods <laughs> all of it you know I, I i love that there's actually this that that you know that, he, that they try to create an actual functional multiverse right right out of all of this right, you right. know i mean it's and really credit, it, it, uh, it, more cocky the one who, man who actually coined the term multiverse right that's right that's, yes yeah, it's great yeah. and i and so to see these characters Again, and they're all their 1970s glory drawn. Bell bottoms. Maybe not exactly the way I think Moorcock envisioned these characters, but still <laughs> fantastic. Mm-hmm. I also, to that point, I, if you don't mind a little anecdote, um, the original, um, the original first appearance of of Elric, which appears in Science Fantasy, June 1961, includes on the cover of that issue an image of, of Elric. 
the cover of that of that, and you should you should look it up, and maybe you could link to it um, in the episode. And when I was in touch with Moorcock and his wife about using um, a story and about using Dreaming City in in my anthology Appendix N, I was talking about potentially finding some artwork from some of these pulps to adorn it with. We ended up going in a different direction, but um, I was asked by Linda on behalf of his wife, Linda, on behalf of Michael, to please not use the image of Elric that appears on the cover. (laughs) 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 So I don't know if you've both seen it, but he's a little, um, yeah, he's actually, he's also a little bit, um, a little bit doughy looking. He's not, he's not this kind of, you know, albino, um, drug addled right you right know. i mean there's been so many great depictions i like the p craig russell depiction oh, love the, it. Yes. the michael gilbert uh renditions in the first comics in the 1980s yes phenomenal. absolutely right um but back to the to the game to deities and demigods i just um it's i'm so glad to have this edition of it uh, i just right. it, I, it's it's really one of my treasures and it's funny too because when when first off it's a great testament to how your favorite RPG book doesn't even have to be useful in the game. The books themselves can just be a source of joy, um, just as an object themselves. But also, um, what's what's kind of funny about Deities and Demigods, too, is if you do try to use it as a functioning source book for gods in your RPG uh, in your RPG games, <laughs> when you actually read the text for each god, it usually just gives a physical description of them and how they fight. It doesn't actually <laughs> tell you about like you know right. what what they or their followers believe exactly. or what their practices are. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, right, right. yes. It's just here's what they look like, and here's what they'll do if you try to kill them. Right, right. Um, I've been on the record, I think, of saying this, though, though, but Deities and Gaming Gods, I think for all of us, shares the same level of importance. In many ways, it was more of a gateway to me than Appendix N was, because Appendix N just sort of tucked away. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right? I mean, I knew about this book before I, like I said, I had right. even d- right. realized Appendix N existed. Right. In and there. that's absolutely. how I discovered, uh, I mean, I'd heard the names Moorcock, but that was like, oh, here's definitively, here's Moorcock, here's El- Elric, here's Fafford. That's and right. Ray it is interesting that he here's does include literature in here. Yeah, mm-hmm. that you have Fafford, that you have um, Elric, that you have um, Lovecraft. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. boom, right there. And that's how I discovered these things. And it's like, oh, okay, right. Uh, this Lovecraft's in the air. And then like, it was maybe a year later that I finally read my first Lovecraft book. And that's that's how it happened for me, you know. Uh, and it wouldn't have been Appendix N, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, Peter, from this collection, what would you like to steal from it and put into one of your games? From from Deities and Demigods? No, no, no. From I'm sorry, not this collection. From this novel. Oh, from the novel. Um, I think the the ship that um, sails on land, I think, is a great. Is, would just be really fun to have that. But but you'd have the to ship have, which sails over land and sea. sea yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you'd have <laughs> to have the characters make a deal with some kind of deity, some kind of. It can't just be they find this cool ship and it works. Right. Yeah. Right. There has to be something at stake to do it. Um, and, it, you know, it's funny because you could. So, uh, uh, an, an artifact like that could kind of be game breaking if you're not careful <laughs> with it. Right. Um, so I think it, it could be interesting to use it up in a way that requires some sacrifice. Right. Right. And and that's a, a constant theme within the Elric books, right? Sacrifice and also bargaining. Yes. Uh, you yes. know, in transaction, which is whereas in like the Tolkien again, 
not to bag on tokens, I love token, but token is always about rejecting the, the, the bad deal, the bad bargain, right? The That's people right. who accept the bargain are the ones who fall, right? That's right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm all about breaking the game. I'm like, if you want to throw in something game breaking, go for it. Let's let let let's see how this affects what you're going to do and what I'm going to do. I'm 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 all for it. <laughs> Hoy, which potentially game breaking or non game breaking thing do you want to steal from this and put into your game? Um, I mean, a couple of things. I think the ship is incredible, and, and I love that scene when Grom finally comes for the ship, and and, and you know, and and it's having to petition and. Yeah. And, you know, and they give the, end up giving the bodies of the three dead Milnabidians so that Grom can bury them. And yeah. that moment where Grom is also like, Grom does not kill. Right. And you're like, <laughs> yes. um, but you just killed a bunch of my people with your big earthquake. Uh, right. Grom does not kill. <laughs> okay, Grom. The mirror is crazy. I like that that mirror, you know, yeah. that, that steals people's memories. But when it's broken, it, it you know, it floods everybody with the memories. Um the it kills almost everybody. Although I will say, I wish we had some follow-up to that. Like, right. do they still have memories of other people that are still floating around in their mind? Or do we just assume that like, uh, once yeah. the wave washed over them, all those memories are gone? Right, right. You know, I think that was a theme, again, that Moorcock was interested in. Maybe he just didn't think to play it out because, you know, he, we know that he works so quickly a lot of mm-hmm. times. But the Eternal Champion, some of the aspects of the Eternal Champion are able to remember their past lives. And some oh, of them are right. That's right. You know, and, and so that's a theme that I think he's interested in, and, and he's interested because in. Because Elric those, doesn't, right? Elric does not, yes. and I don't think Hawkmoon does, but but um, John Dacre does, yes. And the various like Von Beck uh, characters do at certain points in their lives. Um, so th- those themes of memory, um, you know, unreliable memory at certain points, uh, but being able to deal with, deal with us, um, and um, so I think the mirror is crazy. Um, but you're right; maybe it would have to. And if it was a thing that was in, in, it's not just a saving throw, right? Suddenly you may have these memories and that would be a way to give you like a character, like a little weirdo attribute, like a fighter might have now a spell, but there's a cost for them to use that spell every time now because they've, they've learned it now, right? They have this memory of it, but at the risk of maybe another personality taking them over for a scene or something like that. Yeah. I uh, mean, that, that goes to some, you know, gaming elements. And I've always, even when playing just traditional d and I've always tried to bring in elements of consequence for magic. I find that, that's one of the things that, as much as I love so many iterations of the game, that's something that's missing. I think mm-hmm. it, you find it, and I'm looking um, behind you, Jeff, in um, Dungeon Crawl Classics does a great job with, I think, um, making magic dangerous, yeah. giving yeah. it a kind of chaos, chaotic element. Um, and so any way in which I think that can be added, some of that element can be added to a game um, as a house rule or something, I think it, it can be really be really exciting and just make magic something you can make magic more powerful but make it more dangerous to the user to the Mm -hmm. to the wielder and also like elric never casually casts a spell every time you cast a spell it's at an incredible physical and mental cost to the caster and that's something that's really lost in a um, Vancian spell system yes. and or a spell point spell system because like you've got you've you've got the spells if you don't use them then you're wasting them so there's more there's 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 more of an incentive to use them than not to use them right right unless right. the spell point system is like GURPS where it allows you to then if you've exceeded your number of spell points to then burn your actual same way that you would spell burn in DCC but that's exceeding you're still you're right. you're 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 incentivized to spend the spell points you do have. Otherwise, you're wasting it. Right. If you have free magic to use every day, 
you are idiotic not right, to right. Well, use it. In GURPS, it's not because it's, it's actually fatigue. But other games, yes, you have free spell oh, points, okay. right? So you're you're always fatigued, and then you're actually causing actual physical harm uh, once you, once you go back past that point. But you're gotcha. right. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and this goes back to your word of the day, uh, your word for this episode, which is grimoire, because the grimoire tradition is one in which you don't just open up a book and cast a spell. It was it, you. There, most grimoires give very complex instructions for purifying rituals that you had fasted for three days that you had really had to prepare yourself and even there if there's one little thing off on your circle your magic circle um you Oof. could be yeah. in big trouble right so right. yeah there's so the preparations are even more intensive than even sometimes this the, the actual just casting of the spell itself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, because all of that, all of that is that, and it's that, it's that last thing is just pulling the trigger, really. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, now, there's something I would like to steal that's not that huge or game breaking, but I think pig, snake, and thing are yeah, pretty oh, awesome. Right. <laughs> <laughs> thing, thing. Yeah, right. And then we find out that thing's name is Frank. Right, right. Do we do we know what that reference is? Is it just like an in joke that he will never explain to anybody? Or I, I don't, I don't know the reference. Right. Do you? No. no, no. But speaking <laughs> of jokes or things, well, it's not a joke. It's funny to me now. But on page one eighty three of my text, which is chapter three, uh, he's talking about Irkun and you know how um, you know Elric is not considered worthy, and 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 this is when he's riding out with Cimmeril into the um, into the you know their last happy day together. Oh yeah, in the rain. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> and he says of Irkun. Yeah, he, he says of Irkun. Irkun, I must admit, would also rule as an emperor should. To, should. He too has the opportunity to make Molimity great again. <laughs> oh yes, yes, I saw that too. Cringe, <laughs> cringe. Yeah, but you know, I would almost buy a baseball cap that said "Make Molimity Great." Make Molimity Great. Urkun twenty twenty four. And one thing that really struck me about there were two scenes in particular. One of them was the scene with Elric and Cimmeril lovemaking in the cave slash like then riding back to uh, the Dreaming City. And then the other one is in the pulsating corridor. Is that what it's called? Pulsating cavern, tomb, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And Elric is like, Stormbringer, Stormbringer. And Urkun is like, Mornblade, Mornblade. (laughs) Uh, Both of those scenes were so anime to me. It's like, for me, like Stormbringer and Stealer of Souls was very Iron Maiden. A lot of this felt very anime. Like, especially like, and they're talking about like Elric's white hair and, yes. and, and Cimmeril's black hair and like they're making love, but then there's like the rain and then right. like the, the flashes of lightning as they're riding on their right, horses right. back to the Dreaming City. I was fully imagining Japanese animation. Well, you know, I think it's a, a full circle because, um, what's his name? Amano, Yashitaka Amano, who designed Vampire Hunter D, hugely influenced by Michael Moorcock. If you look at any okay. of his art, art it's, it's clearly he's drawing Elric, even when he's not drawing Elric. And he's actually drawing Elric, too, but on top of that. So, <laughs> so it is a full circle, you know, type situation. Could I actually um, request a mini contest? I will send a copy, a signed copy of Appendix. It will be my signature as the editor, so not that special, but right. um, a, a signed copy of Appendix N to any of your listeners who will draw for me a sketch of Elric with Stormblade fighting yeah. Gene Wolf Severian with Terminus Est. 
Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be some people in our. Well, it's open open call, not just our Patreon. Open call. Okay. Yes. Okay. Perfect. So okay. first first Can one, or are we? How many copies are we talking about of making a video? Uh, yeah. Are we, are we are we maxing this out after so many? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. So I'll say the to- I'll I will send two to the to the two picks. Okay, perfect. perfect. Okay. Two copies out. <laughs> yep. Okay, listeners, yep. you heard it here first. Get get your sketch pads out. <laughs> Are they sending this to Appendix and Book Club at gmail.com? Yeah, that'd be great. And then we could perfect. actually if you want, we really could have them and put them on the site and um Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I love this. Yeah. Perfect. I yes. mean look, we could you guys should do a could do I don't know if you've done it before, but just a whole episode about swords, right? Right. <laughs> Name swords. <laughs> I mean, right. now with our new format, yes, that, that could certainly be a theme of an episode, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But we've certainly covered many books with named swords in them. Right, right. Yes. I still don't understand what what's his name sword does uh, from the uh, Gardner Fox books. It's, it's not clear that it does anything. Frostfire. Frost oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it keeps him poor. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he thinks it does. Who knows? <laughs> so now, does uh, does Mournblade come up again in in other stories or no? Yeah, I, I can't remember. It's been a while, you know, and I think I might not have ever even read Elric of Melnobini back in the day when it came out, because I, 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 I think the first book I actually read was uh, Stormbringer, even though it was the Daw one. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, it was a, that was how it was a lot of times. In, um, before there was a really specialist bookstore, you kind of just, like, picked up a book and just started reading wherever it was in the series. And then if you were lucky, you we go, could go back and find the, you know, the, the earlier books. Yeah. Um, you didn't have an Amazon to sort of, you know, do searches on. So. Totally, totally. Yeah. Although I was quite fortunate, and I don't know, Peter, if you was was the science fiction and fantasy bookstore there in Harvard Square? Uh, did you did you go there? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Oh, so amazing. Yeah, there were just millions book millions of bookstores, record shops, and in fact, I'll give a shout out to the comic book store, um, probably where I bought my, you know, um, Elric comics is Million Year Picnic, and mm-hmm. I've actually Absolutely. Been, I worked there. I worked oh, there for a couple of years. fantastic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saturdays for yep. a long time, yeah. Um, I probably ran into you because I've been buying my comics there coming on, um, I'm going to say, almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And we are starting to run out of time. Is there any kind of last thought about Michael Moorcock's Elric of Monimide that like, you really wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to get to? No, I mean, this has been really fantastic. I mean, I do want to say that I think of of all the appendix, all the stories that appear um, in in the book, even though there's a, it's a little bit cliche to to have this story in there. It's sort of, of course, you would have an Elric tale in Appendix N, um, the Dreaming City. I'm just, I couldn't imagine have make doing this book without an Elric tale. And, right. yeah, I mean, it's such a clear break point between what came before and what comes after. It really right. is, and and I and I do think for folks that haven't read this, um, the novel, it's it's really it still stands up. I think it's just great fantasy fiction. And what else is in the collection for anybody listening who may be curious? Yeah, so I, there's a couple of um, things that I think people would expect to see, like Jewels in the Forest by Fritz Lieber, and um, Tower of the Elephant by by Howard, of course, and um, I actually um, Lovecraft's uh, The Doom That Came to Sarnath is in here. I do want to give a call out, though, to a couple of tales. Um, Tower of Darkness by a fellow named David Madison, which appeared in one of the Swords Against Darkness uh, collections, and um, he died very young. He didn't publish a lot. He was really part of the early science fiction and fantasy fanzine scene, 
mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I was really happy to get um, a copy of his. And I think um, a lot of the, quote, the reviews I've seen of this book are already calling out how special that story is. Right, right. Um, and that he's, nobody had really even heard of him. And um, uh, Pit of Wings by Ramsey Campbell. Campbell's also somebody who appears in um, Swords Against Darkness. Right, the Ryer stories. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and one of the only living authors in this collection, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which which uh, Michael Moorcock is one. Right. And you have yeah. a Margaret Sinclair story in there as well? Right? I do, yep. Right. That's and right. her the rights are all tied up with all sorts of weirdness, right? At the yes, moment. The Man Who yeah. Sold Rope to the Knolls yeah. is a story in here, which is actually a um, callback to a Lord Dunsany story mm-hmm. as well. Right, and that's a big. That's one where the uh, DCC Free RPG Day Adventures was very much based on this on that yeah, story of hers. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Peter, what are there any projects you're working on right now that you'd like people to know about? Yeah, I guess related project, at least in this um, world, is that I'm working with a fellow named JF Martell, who does a podcast, uh, Weird Studies, and he and I are contracted with Chaosium right now to do a Call of Cthulhu module. Oh, nice. Uh, adventure. So we're working on that. And, Very cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's a matter of, you know, writing it and getting it to them. But <laughs> yeah. So one day you may uh, see that. Um, yeah. So that's that's taking up a lot of a lot of uh, my uh, writing time right now is trying to get that into the can and send it off. Very cool. And if folks want to find uh, find you online or find your works online, what is the best place for them to go? Probably, you know, Instagram and Twitter, I have my my full name is my username in both those places. So you my account names, you could easily find me there. Um, I would say um, you could go to a Strange Attractor website to get more information on Appendix N. If you're, um, I know for your listeners in the UK, it would probably be easy to get it directly from them as they're a UK publisher. Um, but the book is available at all your normal channels. And um, I would urge you to ask your um, local gaming shops that I know are in need of support right now um, with the pandemic. Um, if they don't have it in stock, they can order it and to buy directly from them would be great just to you know keep the support of the small shops. I love that. And Hoy, how can folks find us? Right. Uh, if you want to uh, give us some feedback, you can send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes. So um, normally we chat with our patrons before our recording due to some scheduling um, um rearranging we did today we actually recorded this before our patron book club but later today we are scheduled to chat with dan alexander jeremy harper and adam styers uh so that should be a fun conversation i would like to also give a shout out to a handful of our other patrons thank you to matt hildebrand vixter by grinstow jeremy harper matt richards thomas edward and andrew sternick for your support we couldn't do this show without your support so thank you Also, we are now letting our patrons vote on which books we're doing in the future. So when this episode becomes available to the general public, our patrons will be able to vote for which episode is going to be episode 103. And our four choices that you're going to get to vote on are between C.L. Moore's Northwest Smith, Terry Pratchett's The Color of Magic, Ellen Kushner's Swords Point, 
and Mervyn Peak's Titus Groan. So you can choose one of those four uh, and we will be covering it. So that should be pretty cool. Super, super. You want to put a thumb on the scale there, Peter, with a vote for one of those four? Uh, I, I don't. I mean, they're all just great picks. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right. So, Peter, thank you so much for being on the show. This thank has been you. great. Yeah, it's been really awesome. I love talking to you both. It's been an honor. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>